Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From the middle is a founding member of the Odd Pods Media Network. <coughs> oh, for the love. Sorry. Just clearing my Mountain Dew hole. I got my phone hole clean today. That's where you keep it? So cerebral, and you're so developed and evolved. <laughs> From the middle after dark over here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 97 of From the Middle, a comedy, culture, entertainment, and all around geek culture podcast. Uh, we are three middle-class guys living in the middle of America in the middle chapters of our lives with a point of view that's somewhere in the middle. You guys, I have a fun little trivia for you. Do you remember SNL used to do a series of sketches featuring Chris Farley called The Chris Farley Show? There were only ever three instances of this sketch, but he would interview celebrities, the most famous of which was when he interviewed Paul McCartney. And Chris plays himself and he's just so excited to be with one of his heroes that he, he can't ask questions. He's so nervous. Well, that is me tonight. Uh, we have one of my art heroes, Tom Richmond. Tom is one of the usual gang of idiots, a Mad Magazine artist and professional caricaturist, cartoonist and illustrator. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> hey, my pleasure. <laughs> do, do you remember... Do you, you remember when you were with Mad Magazine? That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, seriously, Pretty man. Good it, Chris Farley. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It was about two years ago, Tom, that uh, Paul Combs introduced us to one another. I was uh, considering joining NCS and, and uh, was going through um, the process to make that happen. And then COVID happened and whatever. So I exploited that contact information and asked you to be on the podcast. And for some reason you agreed. So, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. We're really excited to have you. So shout out to Paul Combs. I am forever indebted to him for making that connection. And, you know, you and, um, you and Paul used to do these USO tours. Um, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Um, and what you guys would do on those tours. Well, uh, they were part of the uh, National Characters Network program, so uh, or National Cartoon Society program, rather. And um, the NCS actually got got its start doing chalk talks for the troops in World War II. So this this was something that they started doing again uh, in um, about ten years ago. And I was lucky enough to be on the first trip. Uh, and yeah, Paul and I went on a few of them. And what we would do is we just get a group of cartoonists together and the USO would send us over to uh, the war zone and the, and we would go to these camps and fobs and, and draw cartoons for 
active troops that were there, you know, serving thousands of miles away from their families. And um, man, it was really, really cool. I mean, get, getting a chance to spend time with these folks and out there and they're all, you know, doing their thing and, and just so far away from home. And I would draw caricatures of them. And some of the other guys would work, were really famous cartoonists that worked on like the family circus or uh, uh, blue, you know, blues, uh, baby blues or, or pearls before swine. And they would draw their characters and put, you know, uh, high, you know, Johnson family or something. And, and uh, it was just, it was just the best. And these people were just the nicest and they were so excited for us to be there. And, uh, and we got to see some pretty, pretty intense places, you know, so it was just a lot of uh, great, really rewarding. I know Paul speaks very fondly of, of sharing some of those experiences with you. What's, what's one of your most memorable experiences being in war zones, doing caricatures of soldier? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so many. Uh, my favorite trip was when we went to the USS Enterprise, the uh, the aircraft carrier that had been decommissioned. In fact, we were the last USO tour to go to visit the Enterprise. And uh, we we were on it and they were in the middle of the Persian Gulf. Uh, and that's where we so we had to do the the cod landing, you know, wow. where you go in on the you go in on the plane and then the cable grabs you and it stops you from falling into the ocean and dying. And uh, and then when we left, they had to catapult us off there, too. It was that was so totally nuts. Um, but my favorite moment, this is a story I tell all the time. So uh, we went to Kandahar in Afghanistan. And we had just gotten there and they put us in these little billets uh, where it was like three of us to a, to a little, you know, room and uh, on the base. And we were exhausted. Like we had just traveled in from Germany and uh, flew on a, you know, C-10 uh, uh, Hercules. And, and uh, it was just, we were, we were wiped out. So um, everybody just sort of put their gear down. We had about an hour before we needed to go anywhere and do anything. So I lay down at my bunk and almost immediately fell asleep. And I'm listening to music in my headphones. Uh, little did I know that shortly, uh, a few seconds later, uh, there was a rocket attack on the base. And so the sirens are going off and everybody's racing to the bunkers to sit down in there. And everybody forgot about me. So I like slept through the rocket attack and when they came back in looking for me and there I was fast asleep and they were like, you just missed this rocket attack. Oh my God. We thought maybe you were going to get blown up. Well, the rocket attack was one rocket that made it about five feet over the, over the fence uh, and probably didn't explode. And then whoever shot it off I mean, instantly wiped off the face of the earth. But uh, yeah. So these guys endlessly razz me now about how, yeah, well, if there's a rocket attack, Tom's the last guy we're going to worry about. Cause <laughs> He runs the slowest, so you know the bear gets him, and everybody else gets it gets away. That's such an incredible story that I'm so <laughs> glad I can pass along because everyone says I can sleep through anything, and now I can be like, "Well, I have a story for you." <laughs> I yeah. know a guy. <laughs> I actually got I got pretty famous for being able to sleep anywhere on those trips. We were when we went to Baghdad, we we flew from. Uh, a camp in um, actually a little north of Baghdad in Tikrit. And we flew out to these fobs that were out in the desert. That's, uh, you know, operating bases that were far away from the main base. 
and we flew in Blackhawk helicopters. And when you're in one of these Blackhawks, they've got you strapped down and one, one door is open, you know, and it's like, you got to have headphones or earphones on because the noise would deafen you. I mean, it's that crazy. And you're, you know, going through and you're going, I'm like this <laughs> fast asleep. Like I'm like Hicks and aliens, you know, when they, when they do the, the, the drop and uh, I, I could just instantly fall asleep anywhere if I was tired enough. And so I slept through a lot of the Blackhawk uh, stuff just because, you know, <laughs> you sleep where you get to sleep. That's great. Well, listen, Tom, if they fire up those USO tours again, I want to be a part of that with the NCS. And I think that sounds like a lot of fun and would love to uh, show our troops just how much they mean to all of us in that way. So uh, that would be awesome. But um, I, this is what I love about our podcast. And you honored us by saying you had checked out an episode or two before joining tonight. And we we try not to ask the questions that people would always get asked for whatever their profession is or whatever it is that they do. So this is the type of stuff that we love. So we'll no doubt touch on the the MAD uh, experience and your experience working there. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps outside of the traditional art bio that's that's on your page or what else would you add to just sort of introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I've I've been married for be 32 years this uh, um, this fall, 33 years this fall, actually. And uh, I've got four kids. My they're all grown up. Uh, none of them are artists. <laughs> But they're all musically talented. Wow. Okay. Which I don't know where they got that from because I can't sing like two notes together and make it sound good. Uh, but all my kids were performers and musicians and singers. And, and uh, uh, so I guess that's where the art gene kind of manifested with, with them. Mm -hmm. My oldest daughter, Elizabeth, is autistic. And so she is uh, an, and not a very high functioning autism. So we, they all grew up in an, uh, in an environment where they learned about, you know, compassion and, and, and how, you know, people, how, how, how lucky you are. They never, you know, they didn't take anything for granted, mm -hmm. realizing that, you know, what they had was something that everybody has. And, uh, and I think that helped shape them too, as, as, as the adults, they are very proud of my kids. Yeah. They're all fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, so my my wife is like my right my right arm. Uh, that's my drawing arm, by the way. So that's pretty important. <laughs> yeah. And she uh, uh, she's very supportive. And, and I think behind every cartoonist, there's got to be a spout of uh, a supportive spouse, you know, because if 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 the cartoonist he or she does not have one of those, it's going to be hard because cartooning is not an illustration and freelancing, not an easy way to make a living. You know, I can, uh, I can speak to that. I mean, I am the product of a supportive wife because if you say I want to draw and do art for a living and do caricatures and cartoons and logos, <laughs> it takes, it takes somebody who's special to go. I believe in you and I can, I can get behind that. We had a comedian on uh, Kellen Erskine and he shared the same sentiment that, those are atypical professions, right? And so uh, it, yeah, yeah. It, it takes somebody to really believe in you and what you're doing. And so I can definitely relate to you there. Yeah, fortunately, she didn't have to sell me too hard to her parents. <laughs> because um, 
you know, imagine, you know, you're, you're introducing, but this is Tom, my, my new boyfriend, and he wants to be a, a cartoonist and draw when he grows, you know, when he, uh, for a living. And uh, Here it is. that probably wouldn't go over real well with most in-laws, you know, or potential in-laws. But fortunately, my wife uh, dated a lot of rock musicians prior <laughs> to, uh, to me. Uh, uh, so I was like, I was like normal city boy, you know, I was like, boy, yeah. this guy might actually have a job job where he has to sit at a desk and do something. Yeah. Um, so, so I had a free pass there. I didn't play guitar in a local rock band. So I was uh, already, already on the good side of the in-laws. But pretty tame by comparison. <laughs> exactly. And I have to ask, I'm sure anyone who's following along on YouTube has noticed some of your Batman collection behind you. Mm -hmm. it, oh, yeah. if, that, if that has prime real estate in your office, that you must be a pretty big fan. Now, Batman kind of was what got me started on this path as a, as a graphic storyteller, illustrator, visual artist. Um, when I was a kid, I, I was fascinated by Batman. And I mean a little kid. Um, I When I was two, my parents tell the story about how I, I knocked over the TV watching the Batman TV show, jumping around with a towel wrapped around my neck uh, as, a, with, as a cape. So, um, and then I started drawing comics, you know, and I loved drawing Batman and then eventually segued into everything else. So I, I, have, I have Batman to thank. That is an actual costume, by the way. Um, I used to wear it taking my kids trick-or-treating around the neighborhood. Nice. And uh, they'd all get candy and the, and the adults would look at me as I was standing there and then they would bring me a beer. So I had a <laughs> pillowcase full of beer by the end of the night. So it was, uh, it was a kind of a win-win. That's awesome. And that looks pretty movie quality. I mean, I know, I know oh, yeah. we're just seeing it in the background, but that looks pretty legit. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, I actually got that. That's, I've had this for about 20 years. Um, I, uh, I got involved with a bunch of guys that made movie props uh, and they, they made movie props professionally, but they were also geeks. So they made like movie quality props from other movies. And it was a, a whole like little subculture and they would get in fierce arguments about, you know, the, the movie uh, accuracy of this or that. And uh, they were like little fiefdoms that this guy's gloves are crap. You know, they, they don't have the right fin length and all this stuff. They were crazy. Uh, and I bought like the gloves from this guy and I had the, this guy make the armor for me and I got the cape from this guy. So I've kind of pieced it together. And, uh, cool. but it's the Val, it's the Val Kilmer version, not the sonar one with the weird yeah. fins, but the, uh, the first one uh, in the early in the movie, which was one of my favorite of the Batman movie outfits at that point, nipples aside. <laughs> That's the title of this episode now, nipples aside. <laughs> so well, you, I, you answered one I of my questions. Looking at some of your, your uh, so I don't know if it was on, on YouTube or it was on your website. I don't remember. I think it was on your website. I saw a leather jacket with the Val Kilmer. Oh yeah. And airbrush that you airbrushed on the back of this leather jacket. And, uh, and you had mentioned that, that you had hung on to that jacket all of these <laughs> years from, from, uh, your airbrushing days. Yeah. And, uh, so it, you're big on Batman. Like you have, 
if 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 you're just listening to this podcast, he does. He has a lot of Batman stuff behind him, um, more than just the life size costume. But uh, so specifically, is would you say Val Kilmer is is uh, your favorite Batman? Do you have a favorite Batman? Do you love them all? Uh, no, I do not love them all. Okay. Um, I uh, Val Kilmer was was okay. Um, my favorite Batman is probably uh, actually Ben Affleck. No, um, I, I I wish I would have seen him in with a little bit better material to work with. You know, somebody a better story. I just thought that he really, especially as an you know, in the older kind of war weary Batman that they they tried to portray him as. I thought he was great at it. And I thought he would have been really good if he would have had a good movie, a really good like story to do. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, Kilmer was, was okay. I thought he was a pretty good Bruce Wayne. Um, he didn't look, he wasn't, he wasn't tough enough looking, you know, he didn't have a big enough physique. It's like, there's a scene in that movie where, uh, where Chris O'Donnell, you know, Dick Grayson is giving him some lip about something or another. And then he said, he says, oh, who's going to, you know, uh, uh, Robin says, well, if I want to do that, who's going to stop me? And Val Kilmer stands up and goes, I am. And it's like, he's a scrawny little dude. You're looking at him going, dude, you couldn't beat up. You couldn't beat up Chris O'Donnell, let alone the Joker. Come on, man. Hit the <laughs> weights a little bit. Your way up to that. <laughs> yeah. So that he looks good in the suit, of course. Everybody does. But uh, yeah, he needed to hit the weights a little bit harder for that role, I think. It feels like the common criticism of Pierce Brosnan is Bond too. Like he just isn't, he's not quite the tough edge. But I think, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was discussing at a family thing not long ago, there's playing somebody as Batman and playing Bruce Wayne. And those are yeah. almost two parts. Uh, and you almost have to compare it because George Clooney gets a lot of crap for his his Batman I think he played the Bruce Wayne part. Like I mm -hmm. liked him in the Bruce Wayne part, maybe better than in the Batman uh, costume. Yeah, but I'd agree. I also think that of uh, uh, Michael Keaton. Hmm. Um, a lot of people love Michael Keaton's Batman. I thought Michael Keaton wasn't very, a very good Batman for the same reason. First of all, he's like five nine, <laughs> you know, and he weighs a buck ten. And then, but he was a great Bruce Wayne, you know. Uh, but you know, I don't know about the him as Batman and I get that Tim Burton's whole thing was it's he's Batman because he's obsessed and he's really rich and it doesn't matter that he's you know like a physical specimen but come on he was one of the first uh heroes that I was drawn to for that reason I liked that he didn't have any powers and so you could almost say if I had the money I could be Batman right like if I mm -hmm. I had the money I could create the gadgets and I could be Batman um and so that's kind of why I, I liked him. But DC's storytelling in terms of like its films, I never felt was was as strong and then sort of started relating more to, to Spider-Man. And even though he had powers, I was like, he's just a kid with pimples who's nervous around girls. And that, <laughs> that made him feel relatable to me. But uh, anyway, yeah, you know what you're talking about when it when it comes to the physique of the Batman as a as a bodybuilder yourself. So. <laughs> I, I try. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, let's go back to um, being introduced to the potential future in-laws when they said, mm -hmm. well, we're glad he's not a rocker. Maybe he'll get a desk desk job doing this cartooning <laughs> thing. Um, 
the industry has changed a lot since those days where where uh, publications or, or companies would have in-house illustrators that would get to set up big desks of all their utensils and tools of the trade. So um, because we got to hit on the mad stuff a little bit, just kind of talk about um, your time there and then um, how, how the media, uh, print media landscape is changing, especially as it relates to humorous print and stuff like that. Yeah, the, that business has changed a lot. Um, even when I started, and I probably really started as an illustrator in the late 80s, or right around 1990, there were no, uh, um, like the, the big studio houses and stuff were going away at that point, too. Mm -hmm. uh, that was There was a time where you would have studio houses, like there was a pretty famous one in Minneapolis called Studio One. And uh, there were a lot of illustrators that worked in there and a lot of them had different um, different expertise, you know, or different places that, you know, their style fit. And they had two cartoonists there. One guy was named George Karn and he uh, did a lot of work for like General Mills. He worked on the Count Chocula and Booberry and all those kinds of characters and, and, and that sort of thing. And I remember visiting that studio um, when I was in college and we stopped off over there and uh, I thought, wow, this is, this is exactly the place I'd like to be like, like surrounded by other artists and you go into work and it's a total creative environment and stuff. And by the time I got out, that studio was done and there wasn't anything like that anymore. And, and it was all freelance by then. Mm -hmm. um, and so fortunately I kind of fell into a, an area of expertise that was very marketable and that was caricature. And I totally fell into that. Like I had no ambition when I went to college, I was like, I'm going to be a caricature artist. I didn't even know what that was. You know, I got a job doing caricatures at a theme park. That was my summer job when I went to college. And that first summer I worked with a bunch of other artists that were really good. And I couldn't believe how good these guys were. Uh, they did, you know the characters but they also did other kinds of art that really blew me away and i thought well this caricature thing might be something i could do to pay the bills you know while i'm trying to figure out what else i want to do uh and it kind of did work out that way because not only did i do caricatures to pay my way through college doing them at these theme parks but i opened my own theme park operations and uh and concession operations and um for a long time i i had a bunch of them and uh they paid my bills, you know, uh, and I was able to then kind of get into the freelance world and try to find places where I could get published uh, without having to worry about how to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. you know? So that really worked out well. And I still do live caricature, but not very often. Uh, I do still have two theme park operations that I run or own. Um, and it's fun, you know, but it's I did it like I did it full time really for 25 years. Or about yeah about 25 years so i had a belly full of it man i mean yeah. when i go do it again i always have fun but but if i have to think about boy i gotta draw three days this week i'm just like oh man you know, <laughs> don't know if i want to do that but i love what you said about the like i i can sort of count on it to pay the bills i'll fall back on this like way to make income it was you dylan who told me at some point in my 20s because i didn't even realize this like 
with a Dixon Marquette marker and a ream of paper, you could go crank out a couple hundred caricatures for some good money at a town square somewhere. And he, and it was Dylan who said to me like, Corey, not everybody has something like that, that they can do. Like if they just want some, some quick cash or some side money or whatever to supplement. And so that's kind of how I always looked at it. You know, I was like, well, I could always do this. I could always just go sit somewhere at a restaurant or at a busy mall or something and go crank out some caricatures. I think it's funny that we, we share that sort of idea or that, that realization early on that it was something that, that you could do. And then, and then it sometimes takes off more than you, you think it will. Well, the, the fact that I got good at caricature really, I, I, I what I found was that, that that was a very marketable thing in the publishing world, mm. you know, because when people ask me about, about caricature and illustration, and I always say, it's one of the best tools you can have in your toolbox because almost every media story is ultimately about people, mm -hmm. you know? So if you can draw people or depict people in a way that's better than a photograph or different than a photograph or more expressive than a photograph, that's something people are going to want. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that really helped me a lot because I specialized in that and I got a lot of jobs because people would say, Oh, well, I need somebody that can do a car, a caricature and this guy can do it you know yeah so uh uh i did a lot of work early on while i did a bunch of comic book work for uh, a small company out of chicago called now comics that was like my first real publishing job in publishing and it was a comic book called married with children which was uh, the fox tv show right mm -hmm. and um i did that for i don't know four years i think I did 25, 30, 40 issues of that. I can't remember how many, um, but uh, that was fun. And I got that job because I could, I could make it look like them. Yeah. You know, so, so that was one. And then that led to uh, another job, another comics job for Marvel. I did a mini series called the Coneheads. And that was like a sequel of the movie, you know, Coneheads movie. This was like a continuation of that story, which was really fun. Um, it was only a four issue gig and I never did another thing for Marvel after that it was, they didn't have too many caricature gigs there, you know? Yeah. Uh, but Marie Severin inked that mm. for me. And, uh, so that was really exciting. And, uh, so that was a fun job. And then I would get, you know, do stuff for politics, you know, do politicians for magazines and, um, you know, celebrities for this and that. And so that really helped me out a lot, uh, being able to, to specialize in caricature, uh, was, was a really good tool to have. And, um, and I, and don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't diss or badmouth uh, live caricature work. I mean, it's a great art form. I've seen some artists that do that, that will blow your mind. Oh, and yeah. it's like, how do you, how do they do that in like five minutes? You know, there's no net, you know, it's all, yeah. it's, it's fun, you know, drawn by the seat of your pants. That's what's exciting about it. And it's one of the things that, uh, that I do kind of miss is drawing like that, where you don't, you don't have time to think about it or sketch it out. You just go in there. It's, it's what I call reflective drawing. It's like, you don't have time to analyze it. It's in through your eyeballs, out through your hands. And there's a natural quality to that, that you just can't capture by, you know, studying and, and noodling around and sketching and erasing. And uh, uh, so that's, that's 
really quite amazing. And, and when I do do it, I, I still like to do it. Like I said, it's, I always have fun, but um, yeah, it's just not something I do a lot of these days. So how does that pivot to, to Matt? I know, I mean, anybody can go to your site and check out your bio, which is hilariously written, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's so great. Thanks. Um, but I know you had tried a couple of times to get in there and then, and then finally did and became one of the usual gang of idiots and worked with some amazing people, uh, the original gang of idiots and Mort Drucker and those guys. So uh, tell us a little bit about your time there and then, um, and then maybe we'll, we'll catch a break and then uh, get on with the second half of the episode. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, when I, I got that job doing caricatures, um, I was actually going to college in, in Minneapolis or St. Paul, and I got a job with a company that also did, did characters at a local theme park in the Twin Cities, but they also had an operation in Chicago at Great America. And uh, they didn't have any spots in Minnesota available, but they did have one in Chicago that opened up. So I moved down to Chicago for the summer and I, and I, I worked with a bunch of artists and we all lived together in this, in this big townhouse apartment. And I had used to read mad when I was a kid, like, you know, fourth, fifth grade, uh, my, my buddy down the street had a subscription and every time it would come in, I'd run over there and we'd read it, you know, and laugh at the parody of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like, you know, I wasn't going to see that movie for another 10 years probably, but still <laughs> loved it. Loved Don Martin, loved everything about mad. We draw our own parodies of this and that. And then I got away from it for a long time. Mm. And, uh, you know, started reading like, you know, superhero stuff. Star Wars came out. I was uh, pretty big into Star Wars when when that was out. And uh, then when I, I moved down to that townhouse and all these guys had big stacks of Mad Magazine with them, they had them, they were laying all over the apartment and I was looking at them going, oh my God, was the artwork this good in this magazine when I was reading it when I was, you know, 11? And sure enough, you know, those, here's an issue I remember having. And I was like, wow, this Jack Davis guy is not just a good cartoonist. He's like a legend. And uh, that kind of turned me back on to Matt. And I'm like, you know what? I'd like to work for these guys. But at that time, Matt was a totally closed shop. Well, two things were against me. One, Matt was a totally closed shop. Two, I sucked <laughs> and had no chance of working for Mad Magazine. I had a lot of years of growing and getting better in front of me before that was going to happen. Uh, but many, many years later, I, I did uh, start sending my work to them. That's kind of a long story. I, I did a little work for Cracked Magazine, the mad ripoff for a brief time. Then I finally got a chance to be in the magazine. And the thing was, so this was like in um, mid 2000, by like June 2000, I had my first job with them. And I'm, I feel like really lucky in that I might be one of the last freelancers that that got into MAD when it was still kind of the Bill Gaines MAD, mm. you know, because because Nick Meglin was still an editor there. He'd been with them since like 1958 or something like that mm -hmm. or 57. Um, uh, John Ficarra was editing. He'd been editing for 30 years. All these guys worked with Bill Gaines before he passed away. And uh, and so it was still very much the old school mad, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was that I was really lucky, especially getting to be there while Nick Meglin was there. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, he really was Mad Magazine incarnate. And uh, and so I felt like I got in it right at the end of that era. Yeah. And um, and I had a blast working for him for over 20 years. Um, but I learned a lot. You know, I grew as an artist and uh, those guys taught me a lot about humor and, you know, selling a gag and and and, you know, pacing and all sorts of things. It was like a huge education uh, working for him, too. So uh, it was great. I was really, really lucky to be a part of that group. How did that feel after all those years, you know, being a kid and 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 enjoying the spoofs? I know for us, for Dylan and I, we grew up in a town of 3000 people, mostly farmers. We didn't have cable or the internet yet. So if you wanted to learn about pop culture or what was going on, you had to literally, I mean, it sounds like the fifties, but you had to go to the drugstore and get a mad, mad <laughs> magazine and like, see what comedy was because we weren't allowed to stay up late and watch SNL. So there was no other way to get like current event, pop culture, entertainment, comedy stuff. And I remember going to Gartner's Drugs and Pepper's Drugstores to get Mad Magazine. So how did that feel to like finally find yourself there sitting with some of your heroes and, and guys that you had followed for all those years and, and now be, like you said, it's that rising tide that raises all boats they're making you better they're teaching you and you're you're just swimming in a sea of of all of that awesomeness <laughs> yeah i threw a party <laughs> like when when my first issue came out and uh, we had a big huge party at my house That's i mean awful. for all i knew it was the only issue i'd ever be in you know <laughs> yeah. so so i uh i just was so excited about about being a part of that and having my having my work in mad and my name in mad and mort drucker was in that issue and angela torres was in that issue and you know uh george woodbridge no woodbridge was gone by then uh um i think uh, rick talka had a piece in that one i'd have to look back and see but yeah i mean it was it was surreal to see my work in between all these guys who i had grown up reading and and thinking that well they were incredible um so that was uh that was tough every issue that came out i would i would be excited that's awesome know, that, that i was in so that was the greatest and but the best part was getting to getting to know these people mm -hmm. you know and being friends with them um you know i i got to uh, spend a reasonably significant amount of time with some of these guys because of the cartoonist society uh, so at least every year we'd get together and then I would go to New York for their holiday party and we'd hang out and, you know, I got to correspond with a lot of them. I got to be pretty, you know, pretty good friends with Al Jaffe. Uh, um, Jack Davis and his wife, Dina, were the first people we met at a Rubin Awards. Oh, my gosh. That was crazy. That was before I worked for MAD. Like I got I became a NCS member um in 1999 and it was part of the reason i got into mad really was the ncs because nick meglin was a member and sam viviano was a member and i got to show him my stuff while we were at the rubens and you know so that was that was instrumental but the first rubens i went to the ruben awards if nobody knows what that is is uh, the national cartoon society every year has an awards banquet weekend yeah so my first rubens was in 90 San Antonio and the and the first person I met was Jack Davis and his wife Dina and we're we're just walking into the um into the lobby and uh 
they're standing right there. And I, I looked up and I was like, Oh my God, that's Jack Davis. Oh my God, that's Jack Davis. And, and Dina saw us and she walked up, she said, hi, I'm Dina Davis. And this is my husband, Jack. Are you guys new? And they were just, they're just the sweetest Southern people. And uh, so we chatted with them forever. And, um, and Jack was a, a good friend for many years. And he was, he was one of my idols and one of the first people I got to meet when I, when I went there. So did you feel like all, Chris Farley meeting Paul McCartney? Like I uh, do. Yeah, now? I sure did. Yeah. In, in fact, I got an even crazier story about that Rubens, if you want to hear it. I would love um, to. So we live in, we live in Minneapolis, right? Or uh, the Minnesota Twin Cities. And Charles Schultz is from here, you know? And uh, don't get much more famous than Charles Schultz. No. And so we went to this Rubens and he was there. He was a very prominent member of the NCS. And they had a, a big icebreaker um, at uh, uh, like an icebreaker, you know, party and little buffet dinner and stuff right on the front in the front of the Alamo. Uh, our, our hotel was right next to the Alamo. So we're right in front of the Alamo and it's all roped off and it's all cartoonist. Yeah, they had a badge to get in there. And so my wife and I are sitting in this uh, bench kind of at one end of this group and we're, we're eating and uh, I'm, I'm pointing out, that's, uh, that's Jack Davis. There's Jack Davis again. That's, uh, uh, that's Jeff McNally, you know, that's Will Eisner. You know, and I'm just like geeking out and pointing all those people. And see that guy way over there in the buffet with the like loud Cosby sweater on? That's uh, uh, that's uh, Charles Schultz. She's like, wow. You know, we 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 uh, got married like uh, a mile away from where he grew up as a kid in St. Paul. And uh, so Sparky's like his name, his nickname is Sparky. Everybody called him Sparky. So he's standing there with his plate and he's looking around for a place to sit. And there was a uh, empty space on the bench right next to my wife, and we're like we're like fifty yards away from him, and between us is probably a hundred big time cartoonists that are like legendary, and you know, uh, I mean, he can't even name them all. And he starts walk he starts walking over towards us, and, and my wife says he's not going to sit down next to us, is he? And I said, are you kidding me? Everybody here knows him. He's going to get stopped. You know, it's not beeline, right? Sat right down next to my wife says, hi, I'm Sparky. And uh, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And we just um, had a nice conversation, talked about St. Paul and, and the area where he grew up and, and uh, asked me what I did. What, the guy never, he refused to talk about himself pretty much. You know, he just would like to know what you did and, and talk about the, the, the event and everything. And that was amazing. That's so cool. And you're like, do you, do you remember when you drew Snoopy? <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think Chris Farley was in high school when I was, uh, uh, oh. when I met him there. So that was pre, pre Farley days. But um, yeah, so. The NCS was great and, and going to the Rubens was great and working for MAD was great. I've been very lucky. That's very cool. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We're going to take a quick break, uh, but we'll have more with Tom Richmond after a quick word from one of the members of the Odd Pods Media Network. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. I was watching one of your videos on YouTube and you're talking a little bit about the work that you would do for MAD and you, you know, you never had time to watch much TV or movies, but you'd have to absorb all this content, you know, rather quickly to be able to do the work you're doing. Um, as the resident idiot, I'll ask for my benefit and, and anyone else who is curious. Um, what was that process like binging, you know, trying to binge these shows or movies? Uh, and what are you looking for as you're, as you're, you know, take absorbing all this content? Cause you've got to characterize everything. You've got to turn it all into huge spreads. You know, mm-hmm. what was, what was that process like for you? What were you noticing? And did you, did you find any new favorite movies and TV shows out of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it was a lot easier to do movies. I thought because you only had to watch a movie you know, a uh, couple hours max, right? And I would watch it a few times, um, but TV shows, man, you'd have to, I'd have to watch at least a whole season of something just to, get, just to get the show. What I would look for is what are the characters like? You know, how, uh, where could, how can I make fun of these people? You know, I, what's the plotting and pacing? What are the environments like? Uh, but I just would try to absorb the show and so I could come up with what they call chicken fat, which are, you know, visual, little visual gags in the background and little things that you would do, uh, to make fun of the show. For example, uh, I watched this show that I had to do a parody of, uh, law and order criminal intent, uh, back when Vincent D'Onofrio was in it. Right. So he was the lead and, uh, I can't remember the name of the lady, the really short lady, that was uh, uh, his partner, and um, can't remember the name of the actress, but uh, Vincent D'Onofrio did all this crazy body language stuff, and he would talk to people, and he'd like lean way over to the side and get like really close to them and talk to them and stuff, and he was always doing this leaning stuff, and I noticed that, and so the entire parody, he is never standing up straight. He's always leaning sideways like this. And what was what was the best about it was that his partner was so short that she would be standing there and he would be he would, you know, be like leaning, stand on one side and his head would be on the other side of her when he was talking to her. And it's it's stuff like that that I look for, you know, that I can then make fun of visually throughout the whole piece and make it a running gag. Um, so that's kind of it. And then when it comes to films, uh, cause TV shows, at least they used to be mostly sets, you know, so 
it was kind of easy to 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 get the visuals with that but with movies they have very visual identities so some movies are really colorful you know and some have a really bland palette and some are dark and noir looking and some are really bright so i would pay attention to that stuff too so if i had to do a movie that was a really dark type film i would use a lot more you know blacks and big dark areas and a lot more contrast and shadows and uh, so those were the kind of things I would look for. But um, yeah, sometimes some of the research would be crazy with some of the stuff. And I would have to I would have to ask friends too that I knew were into shows uh, that I didn't have time to watch like six seasons of anything, you know. So I would say, so is there anything that happened in the show that, you know, would be fun to, you know, to to call back in the visuals or whatever? I remember we did a, a parody of a reality show called Trading Spaces. Um, and one of the, uh, designers or whatever, her name was Genevieve. I don't remember her last name, but one of my neighbors loved that show. And they said, oh, when you draw Genevieve, don't have her wearing shoes. She's always barefoot whenever she's in these shows for some reason. She like running around people's houses and she's always barefoot. So I had a lot of fun with that. I gave her these big flappy golem feet and she'd ha always have like little flies kind of flying around him and everything. So little things like that are fun. That's interesting. I, I never really thought about that on the TV si side of it, but like very rarely are all the characters of a TV show in one episode. And it's so much more about just capturing the likeness. I mean, the mannerisms like you described or like, if you were doing something like Jim Carrey, I mean, he's got a thousand faces and his body's all over the place. So it makes sense that you would have to consume a fair amount of that to be able to throw in all those little uh, those little nods to the show to really show that care and attention that you 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 put into it. Yeah, and it's easier if you one of the questions people ask me all the time, and I do like this question, so I'll ask it to myself and then I'll answer it <laughs> is. Uh, they say, uh, would you rather do a parody of a TV show or movie that you hate mm. or a TV show or movie that you love? And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> because if you have any emotional reaction to it at all, it makes it fun. You know, yeah. so if, if I if I happen to love a show, then I really get into it and I really get I learn the characters, you know, and I and I get and then I can it, you can make fun of things you love. I mean, that's that's there's no problem there but i i understand it i really i really like i can consume it easier uh if i really hate the show then at least i get to you know blast it and make make a lot of fun of it so but if it if it's really boring and there's just nothing to it you know that's when i kind of go oh man yeah so i did you know some of my favorite shows i did i loved doing mad men mm. that was a great show to to, to do uh, Stranger Things was one of the more recent ones I did that I really dug. Um, and then I really hate This Is Us. <laughs> and I had to do that. I had to do that show. Fortunately, my wife loves This Is Us. So I and I had to suffer through the whole first season with her on that one. And uh, just isn't my bag, you know, but uh, um, yeah, so I got to make fun of it. Uh, and I got to lean on her a little bit for some of the insider gags, you know. That's great. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, and I liked Lost. That was another one that I liked that I enjoyed doing. I felt like I could tell you liked Lost because your Lost caricatures are some of my favorites. 
Um, oh, thanks. Those black and white sketches. I mean, Sawyer especially was one of my favorites in that scene <laughs> we'd done. Um, he just you, yeah. got that that smolder face, man. Um, cool. So that was a fun one. As it as it relates to like like we said, the print media landscape. I'm going to steal Kendall's question. So, what do you think that that looks like in terms of you know how that industry's kind of been disrupted? Um, and, and maybe how they're, they're going to appeal to a younger audience. And then that kind of segues into your claptrap project about sort of the way that that industry is going and, and what you guys are doing, um, as Matt is no longer doing some of these parody mm -hmm. things. Well, yeah, the print industry has been going downhill for a number of years. You know, people want to blame the internet, um, on it, but it actually was starting to decline before, before the internet became the the mass, you know, uh, media consumption empire it is. Um, but uh, the bottom line with illustration and print media is there are fewer magazines or fewer publications. And so therefore fewer, you know, less work and they don't have as big a budgets as they used to. And it's mostly about where advertising went. You know, that's, that's kind of it where eyeballs stop looking at magazines and they and they are looking elsewhere now and advertisers went to the elsewhere and and the magazines don't have the ad revenues to to do what they did so uh but there's still plenty of media you know there's still a lot there's still people still want to find out about you know pop culture and news and all that kind of stuff so it's just a matter of figuring out how what i do fits into that you know mm -hmm. And the big problem, of course, is monetizing the internet. You know, everybody everybody consumes for free now. Paying, uh, you know, uh, for a newspaper is inconceivable for most people under the age of thirty. I mean, they're like, "Well, I get all that on for free. Why would I have somebody throw that on my doorstep?" You know, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they don't they don't quite get that while you were paying for that newspaper and all those advertising advertisements were in there, people were making a living doing that. And therefore there was professional versions of that. Now is a lot less of that these days. There's a lot of stuff to consume, but a lot of it is not so great. Mm -hmm. And uh, because people aren't really, you know, it's tough to make money doing it. So, but I, you know, it's, it's been a challenge to try to figure out how to find new revenue streams for, you know, humorous illustration and cartooning. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of a lot of people have turned to books and books are still a thing you know people still buy books uh and um if you can you know produce books and and illustrate books and stuff there's a market for that kind of thing now um a lot of cartoonist friends of mine that used to do uh comic strips right they're not that business too is really failing because uh, newspapers are failing and you know, there are, there's no more Garfields out there, you know, right. uh, there's no more Bloom counties. Um, mm -hmm. Now everything's moved to the internet and figuring out how to monetize it is the big thing. But uh, a lot of them have gone to doing these, these uh, YA books, you know, these young adult books uh, that are just like little uh, paperback sort of things, kind of um, the big pioneer for that was probably, um, the uh, wimpy kid, mm -hmm. right? Jeff Kinney, mm -hmm. uh, where they're sort of half illustrated, half written, kind of, you know, uh, and 
so many of the people I know are 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 big into that right now. The guy who did Pearls for Swine, Stefan yeah. Pastis, who is one of our uh, USO buddies um, yeah. that Paul and I went to a lot of trips with. He still does Pearls Before Swine, but he's been doing these uh, Timmy failure books mm -hmm. and they made a movie out of it. And that's his main focus now. Yep. So it's so that's kind of what you got to do. You got to find someplace else to go to do your to do your stuff, you know. And uh, so um, I've been doing all sorts of different things for the last few years. I started doing these caricature workshops. Mm -hmm where I travel around the world and I, and I have these, and I do these classes and teach caricature, I wrote my book, the, how to, you know, the mad art of caricature. Um, and, uh, I started, well, I started my website in about 15 years ago now, and I've been building an audience there for a long time with my blog and everything. Uh, and now I produce a lot of self-published stuff that I sell to my audience, you know, so sketchbooks and prints and, um, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and now we're doing this, I did my first crowdsourced uh, project this fall. And um, since Mad stopped doing movie, movie and TV parodies and now pretty much stopped doing everything, uh, one of the Mad writers, Desmond Devlin and I decided we were gonna, we wanted to keep the movie parody genre alive. So we, we conceived this book and um, we crowdsourced it and crowdfunded it and got reached our goal. And now we're busy working on it. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We did a little prep call, uh, Tom and I, and you said that you were originally maybe not too excited, excited about this crowdfunding thing and didn't know what it was all about. And then it just took off, which, mm -hmm. which speaks to a couple things. One, you've built a, like you said, you're really consistent with your blog and your website. So you've built a following there. So now there's something that you can turn around and offer to that audience. And as a Star Wars fan, I love that because the last Star Wars film was never covered in parody form, you guys are going to cover that. And so uh, really excited about that as well. Um, so that's awesome. I, I, I love how, you know, you've you've stayed um, willing to reinvent yourself. Um, I think it's uh, a Will, Will Rogers quote that I that I quote often, which is, even if we're on the right road, we'll get run over if we stand still. Um, so, you know, there's a willingness like that. to always be reinventing yourselves and, and sort of looking around the corner to see why, what might be next and what opportunities might be there. So good for us that you've stayed willing to do that because that just means that we just get to keep looking at your stuff and supporting you in that way. So I think yeah, that's well, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it's been uh, the the crowdsourcing thing was was uh, quite an adventure, and um, one of the one of the things I didn't like about it was that it was too you know I, I had a I had a little bit of a problem uh, supporting a lot of crowdsourced stuff because I, who knows if I'd ever get this thing you know, and I heard so many so many horror stories about people doing it you know doing this big thing and then it took them ten years to do their you know, project or some ridiculous thing like that, or they never did it. Uh, but Des and I talked about it and we're like, look, we've, we've got a long track record of producing this exact sort of work uh, under deadlines. You know, Des was with Mad for over 30 years. I was with Mad for over 20 years. I never missed a deadline. I don't think Des ever missed one. So I thought we, we had a little bit of a, we had some clout you know, where we could say, look, we are going to produce this book and you are going to get it. 
uh, and be able to say that and say, look, people really ought to believe that because, you know, we've been doing it for decades. So, uh, I wasn't afraid to, to throw myself out there like that, but that was probably my biggest fear was that I just thought people would think, Hey, you know, maybe this guy's never going to do it, you know? Um, but enough people said, yeah, we think we got faith in you. And so now we're working like fiends trying to get it done (laughs) because we ended up doing 12 parodies and that in, in what's going to end up being about nine, maybe 10 months of time. That's a lot of work, boy. These really are, these are some pretty intense, uh, projects and, uh, and also Des writes a lot of words. So (laughs) I'm going to have like the the shortest one we he's written so far is, is, uh, seven pages. I think that would be a long one in mad. And I've done, we've done two nine pagers and an eight pager already. So, (laughs) I'm like, dude, why don't we do a short movie? Like, uh, what's the shortest movie there is? Uh, <laughs> something that's about 58 minutes. But, um, you know, that's the other fun thing about that project was we did the Star Wars movie, right? Um, um, the Rise of Skywalker. And that was always going to be the first one we did because Mad didn't do it. And we were big fans of the Star Wars parodies, you know. Uh, Harry North did the first one and Mort did the next five and uh, um, Herman Mejia did the prequels and oh no I think Mort did the first he might have done the first two prequels mm-hmm. yeah he did the first two prequels and I think uh, Herman did the last one but um, we thought it was uh, a real shame that they never did they never finished their parody you know, uh, trilogy. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, so we did it and, uh, we did that one, uh, on spec, right? Like we, we had that one done pretty much before we had this thing crowdfunded. So if we, if we did reach our goal, we still would have had the star Wars parody done. Yeah. But, but, um, so then we thought, well, let's do, because we only wanted to do movies. So we thought, well, let's do a combination of like new movies, a f- you know, a few new movies and then some classics that Mad never did. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a good idea. So we were ready to do that. Then 2020 happened. <laughs> and there weren't any new movies. Yeah. So we're like, so now what are we going to do? Let's just do classics. So we're doing all these movies that Mad never did, which... It are, there's quite a long list of really great movies that you would think, wow, man must have done this movie. And they didn't, you know. So we're doing um, uh, The Shawshank Redemption. One of my favorites. Yeah. And uh, Blade Runner. Nice. And some of the other ones that we're doing. Um, well, we had we had we allowed some of our uh, some tiers of our crowdsourcing people to to vote to nominate and vote on movies. So the three that they chose was the ones that um, they chose were The Princess Bride, Citizen Kane, and The Blues Brothers. Nice. And then we chose Star Wars, Blade Runner, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, and Psycho. Oh, cool. And then uh, we had a we had a, a tier where there was the super tier, right? Only for like 
the Dandy Warbucks types, <laughs> and they um, uh, one of those one of those that they got to pick the parody, and they get all the art and everything. Oh wow! Uh, so so Toy Story Four is one of the movies we're doing for that one, and if that one seems weird, the reason we're doing it is because the director of Toy Story Four, Josh Cooley, is the one that bought that. So we're doing his movie. <laughs> That's great. And actually the other one, uh, Psycho is the other one of those, but we had already kind of thought we're going to do Psycho anyway. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and so we have one more that we still have to spring on people that we, 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 we decided we were going to pick it. And uh, I'm bringing up my list because I know I'm spacing one out. Oh, the big Lebowski and Goodfellas. Oh, those my are gosh. the other two. Yeah. And That's toys so and, and unforgiven. So those are all the other movies. And then we got one more that we've all, we've picked out and we're going to, we're going to announce it pretty soon here. Um, uh, Des wants to hold it, to hold it in his back pocket for a while yet. Of um, course. Yeah, we need to get, we got to tell people this one. So, but you it's a good you, one. You don't want to unveil it here on from the middle. There's like 12 people nah. that would be really excited. No, I'm, I'm Des will kill me. <laughs> I, I have to ask, that's a heck of a list. Did, are there any that you've done so far that have been your favorite or you were most excited to work on from that list? Uh, Blade Runner was the one I insisted that we do. Uh, I was like, I'm not doing it if we don't do Blade Runner because <laughs> yeah. that's that's my all-time favorite sci-fi movie. Yeah. And um, uh, and I and I still can't believe Matt didn't do it. That is surprising. Right? But you know what? Sometimes it depends on uh, on a bunch of factors as to why they didn't. Like, you know, the reason they didn't do Shawshank was because, one, uh, it really wasn't a big box office hit. It actually was kind of a disappointment at the box office, although it ended up getting nominated for a ton of Oscars and other awards. Um, but Pulp Fiction came out at exactly the same time. And that was a huge buzz, you know, that people were going ape shit over uh, um, over Pulp Fiction. So they did Pulp Fiction instead. And then by the time they would have gotten around to doing Shawshank, it had already been long gone out of the theaters and everything. So that was the reason they missed that one. So a lot of times it's timing, you know, mm -hmm. another huge movie came out at exactly the same time and they went with that movie instead. And then it was too late to do that. The other movie. Yeah. Um, you know, because it takes forever to do one of these. And, and uh, um, to, by the time you write it and get it drawn and it's in print, it's like three month process, you know. Yeah. So if they don't pick the right movie, you know, nobody's going to care about it when the parody comes out. Yeah. So they got to stick with movies that are kind of, especially these days, because back in the day day, movies were in theaters for six months, mm -hmm. you know. Or sometimes a year, they would trickle down from New York to Denver to, you know, uh, lacrosse to Timbuktu. And uh, and it was it was all it was still in theaters and people were still watching it. Uh, and nowadays it's like on 3000 screens and three weeks later, it's toast. Yep. And you're on to the next big movie event. So um, that's the other thing I was excited about doing movies like Unforgiven and Goodfellas. You know, um, these are great dramas and uh, man didn't do a whole lot of those in its in its last, you know, later days. We were mostly doing, you know, the big blockbuster event type movies just because they wanted them to be ones that 
were going to sell the magazine even three or four months after the movie came out, you know? Right. So I used to joke that if, if a movie I was, if a movie didn't have Cape, a wand, an alien in it, then we wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be doing a parody of it. <laughs> That's so great. I'm, I'm very curious uh, about the relationship and, and the process uh, between writer and illustrator. Uh, so you, you and Desmond um, are breaking off together and you're, you're doing uh, the, the Claptrap book. And, uh, and so what, what I'm wondering is when you, when you go and when you do that with him, when you sit down and you decide that we're going to be doing the next Star Wars movie, uh, I'm picturing like the, a whole big storyboard, a dialogue, a relationship between, between you and him, um, in part because I, I think the nature of what you're doing is, is that there's there there are there are jokes and and there's tongue in cheek things where you have to have the words, but then like the the other half of it is in the picture, and and you can't necessarily do one without the other. The, the joke doesn't play right without that the other if it plays at all. Um, and so I, I guess I, I'm making some assumptions there, but. Uh, so is that like a, a start to finish collaborative effort that 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 you guys are deciding together what's going to happen what's going to be said versus what's going to be shown or or is it a, a writer starts the the race and then and then passes a baton off to an illustrator um what does that whole dynamic look like and how important is that collaborative relationship well it's very much the latter uh of what you just described. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't like have, uh, you know, creative meetings where we talk about which scenes we, we think we should do and all that stuff is Des writes the script and delivers it to me. And then I pick it up from there. I like your analogy of the baton. Uh, and the, at that point, there's some back and forth. Now, when we worked at, at mad, uh, we never talked like I never talked to the writer. We, we had, we had zero communication in the process. If, if I had a question about the script, if something didn't make sense to me, if I was reading this gag and I was like, this does not make any sense. You know, the story is this, you know, it's, it's like, or this scene happened before this scene or something like that. I would have to call my art director, Sam. And I'd say, look, I don't get this. Why is this this? Or you got to explain this to me because I can't, I'm not figuring out how to sell this gag. Then if he had to, he would go back to Des. So he, we had an intermediary, basically. Uh, and and really, the the probably the biggest reason for that is that the editors at MAD were very much wanted to be in control of everything. So they did not want us collaborating behind the scenes about doing something and then springing it on them. They wanted to to see what was happening, and we had to send in. I, you know, Des had to send in the script, and they'd send it back for rewrites, and they'd edit him. Uh, and then I would, you know, have to send in pencils and get my, my visual gags approved and stuff. So it was, they were definitely they definitely had the reins um, when it came to that. Now they're out of the picture, hmm. right? So it's just me and Des, but we're still keeping it separate in that he starts it. And then I finish it, but we now communicate. 
So he will occasionally send me, like when he's working on a script, he'll call me and say, hey, I'm thinking about this scene and I'm wondering if I can, you know, if I should handle it this way or this way, what do you think? And I might give him some ideas. He probably won't listen to me and just do whatever he wants anyway, but at least he, at least he gave me a little bit of a nod there. And then I would get his script and then I, then I would start doing my thing. And, um, you know, and my job is to sell his gags and also to do, uh, you know, my own kind of visual gags. And Des would recommend visual gags. He would say, hey, it would be funny if you drew, you know, this guy in the background or something. And, uh, but just like, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call him up and say, hey, you know what, you should rewrite this joke because I think, or this joke is no good. Why don't you put this joke in there instead? Uh, I would, I could take his advice if he wants, if he wants to suggest a visual gag and I might do it. If I decide I want to ignore it, I just ignore it. If I wanted to write my own gag, I write my own gag, but I send him then my pencils and he sends me his scripts. So we do kind of play off each other once we get the work together together. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I might suggest to him, Hey, you know, this scene would work better if we did this, uh, visually. And, uh, and he might, you know, say, uh, sometimes he'll say, yeah, yeah. You know, that's really great. Sometimes he'd be like, boy, you know, we go back and forth and kind of argue about it. Uh, and if one of us could convince the other one to do it, then that'd be great. And sometimes he'd just be adamant and say, look, that does not make any sense. We've got to do it this way. And I'd be like, okay. So, uh, um, so, so it's much more of a collaborative effort. Now we have no editor, right? So Des has to edit himself, which he's done a very good job of. I was worried he was going to send me like, you know, a nine pound manuscript with everything, but he's, he's done a great job of, I think really picking good jokes and probably he's left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor on his end. Um, and then I have to do all the layouts and you know right. and design work and and all that stuff that used to be done by the art department so it's a lot more work to do it this way that's, yeah, that's fascinating that is a very interesting answer is it, it it sounds like almost like a like a slow burn riffing <laughs> off of each other um just because there's there's so many of of instances where it was like you have the words and there's a joke there, but the joke was made so much funnier because the two guys were riding on a horse together or something. You know? <laughs> right. And, and and to think that like that wasn't necessarily done collaboratively, but it was instead one riff off of someone else's joke um, is uh, is cool. And 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 also, uh, I think testament to to what uh, what visual art can do is is it can. It can plant, it can plant emotion. It can plant humor, um, all by itself. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's called selling the gag. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's that's my that's job. Well, I got a lot of jobs doing these these movie parody, this movie parody art. So Sam Viviano did it for years before he became an art director. You know, he did uh, movie and TV parodies for Mad for twenty years. Um, he used to. He used to liken it to juggling. It's like you had to keep all these balls in the air when you do these parodies. One is you got to do comic book storytelling, you know, so move the eye around the panel, you know, that whole thing. Or move the eye around the page, panel to panel. Um, then you've got to do selling the gag. So, so the writer's written a gag, 
that, that that's 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 a joke that's in the words and the artist's job is to do a visual that reinforces that joke makes that joke a little funnier maybe uh you know add something to that joke whatever it is making you know really selling that gag then there's the caricatures of course you got to draw caricatures of all these people make them recognizable from all these different angles and all these different expressions and everything and then you got to do the chicken fat that's the background gags and all the little stuff that's that's in the background and the the nods to the show the the non sequitur cameos the you know little signs in the background saying something dumb uh <laughs> or whatever and uh those are all you know parts of that all 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 parts of the flavor of the soup you know that you're putting together and uh and it doesn't it it doesn't work very good if if all those parts aren't mixed together well so but Des is very good at writing visually. Like, I think he, he's got a good head for understanding what would work visually for a panel. So he'll write gags that are right in my wheelhouse. Like, you know, I will inst I'll read this, this, this panel. I'm instantly go, I know exactly how to draw this one. Uh, and I think he probably had that in his head, you know, because it's, it's when you, when you're writing, um, he sees the characters interacting and how I can use expression to really make it funny. Uh, and uh, so that makes my job easier, you know, because I'm a, I, I just get excited about working on his stuff. Um, yeah. And a lot of the visual gags he suggests are really funny too. So I actually very seldom refuse to do the ones he, he suggests because they're usually pretty good. Sometimes I get mad at him because he wrote a visual gag that I was planning on doing all along. And I'm like, oh, now you get credit for this one. You know, I didn't think of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I got I got kind of mad at him when we did the Aquaman parody uh, because I yelled at him. I said, stop suggesting all these gags because I I was going to do that gag. One of them was every time every time Aquaman was being drawn, I, I needed to draw different tattoos on him with different gags on him, you know, so. <laughs> That's good. Like like Charlie the Tuna or something like that. And I was I had been planning that all along. And I'm like, oh man, now now you get credit for that for thinking of that. And he goes, No, you thought of it too. But uh so we so we work well together in that. I think we have similar uh, similar senses of humor and, and similar visions that uh kind of at least they at least they mesh together well. Yeah, it's clearly very complimentary and I know I'm really excited to get my hands on this book. So you're fully backed on Indiegogo, right? Um, can people mm, still yeah. back it and and get themselves a copy? How's that going to work? And yeah, they've got a thing with Indiegogo now where it's called uh, in demand store afterwards, and you can basically pre order a copy. Uh, there's awesome. still a few perks left. Like I've got, I limited how many original sketches I do in a book. Uh, and there's a, a handful of those left, um, you know, a couple other little little perky things that you get if you want, but uh, cool. you certainly can get a copy of the book. And uh, if you pre-order a copy of the book, you uh, get the Star Wars parody sent to you as a PDF. So you get to see the entire Rise of Skywalker parody uh, right away. So Awesome. We'll be sure to include the uh, the links to that in the description of this episode. We've gone a little Great. long and I want to respect your time. Do you have a little more time for questions from our loyal listeners? Sure, you bet. Okay, you don't have to spend long on these, okay? So okay. Uh, one of Dylan and I's favorite teachers, Mike Steyer said, how have improvements in drawing technology 
change the creative process for artists? Kind of a bigger one, but you can you can probably tackle it pretty quickly. Uh, well, I do use a lot of technology. I've got kind of a foot in both worlds there. I still ink traditionally, like with dip, mm-hmm. dip pens and brushes. I, yeah. I, I never was able to ink on the digital side of things, yeah. but I do all my coloring digitally. And uh, I kind of I waffle back and forth between doing roughs uh, digitally and doing them um, doing traditionally, but all my finished work is done. I scan all my line work and I color it. So uh, for me, when I first got started in the early 90s as, a, as an artist, I, and I went to school in the late 80s, there was no digital anything you know, in my classes. Like we had a we had an Apple II in the <laughs> attic of the school that had Mac Paint on it. That was like as yeah. that was as good as it got. There wasn't even Photoshop then. So, uh, but I pretty quickly realized that this was the future of this stuff. So I went out and got my own into you know Wacom tablet, and and got Photoshop and and Illustrator and started learning how to do this stuff. And I knew it wasn't quite it wasn't so much the 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 process is the end product. Like I knew that art directors were going to want a digital file, not some piece of art they had to send out and get scanned, you know? So, so that was kind of where I thought that was going to accelerate the digital illustration world. And, you know, so, so fortunately I taught myself all that stuff and uh, now it's something I I use every day. And uh, I've got a big Wacom Cintiq tablet, one of those big monster ones that uh, I, I use it every day. So, yeah. but it's just a tool, man. It's yeah. just a tool. It's just like, makes those you, makes those middle steps a lot faster. Like you're describing working iteratively, conceptual sketches, mock-ups, mm-hmm. pencils, whether that's an illustrator or a writer, you can just do that. Swipe up, send, they can see it quickly, swipe back, you know, yeah. so just makes those middle steps processes faster. Yeah, it definitely has made things faster and more convenient, but it but there's no piece of technology that makes you draw better. Amen to that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so here's one from Greg Lawrence. He's got a couple actually. So in your bio, uh, it describes your famously large biceps. Um, that's not part of his. <laughs> that's not part of his question. That's just part of my setup. Would you rather oh. fight a single hundred foot duck? or 100 one-foot horses? So a single 100-foot duck or 100 one-foot horses? Mm, Boy, that's a toughie. I guess I'd go with the horses. Because? Um, Because I've got pretty strong legs and I can do a lot of kicking. (laughs) I think I could kick 100 100 one-foot horses uh, out of the picture before I got too tired. The absurdity, the absurdity right now that I'm asking Tom Richmond that question. (laughs) I know for a fact you've never gotten that one before. So that is great. That's true. And and how cool that that you have an opportunity to encounter these magical, cute little one foot horses and you just kick them. Well, I have to. I have to assume that they're that they're aggressive and attacking me. Otherwise, I would just you know walk by whistling. Yeah. (laughs) I thought okay. as the former Star Wars fan, you'd say because you had the high ground, but that's a whole <laughs> other thing. <laughs> All right. Um, Greg also asks, is there anything you were asked to draw from Mad that was too far out there and you refused? Uh, no, they've never asked me to draw anything too far out there. Easy. I did refuse one job, though, but it was because I was uh, 
I was busy. <laughs> I had to go set up. I had to go set up a, a theme park caricature operation out in New England, and I was I was literally getting in a truck full of equipment to drive from Minnesota to New Britain, Connecticut, and spend two weeks setting up caricatures, airbrush tattoos, and airbrush T-shirt operations in in this place. And Mad called me and said, "We need you to to do a parody of the movie Panic Room, and we we've only got like three mm. weeks. Can you get it done?" And I'm like, "No chance. Yeah, <laughs> we can't do it." So I had to turn it down. I was physically ill, mm. like that whole drive back there, going, "I just turned down Mad Magazine. Like it's over. My life is over. They'll never call me again." They did. I I did another job. They did. Them, it all worked out. Yeah. You didn't get to draw yeah. Jodie Foster, but it all worked out at least that time. Yeah. Um, what's a skill that you found super useful as an illustrator that you would never have dreamed would be so integral to your work? So I imagine, you know, some caricature artists learn sculpting and they'll sculpt a face and then see it from different angles or getting really animated to take reference photos. Hmm, boy, that's a toughie. Um, I guess, uh, I don't know about a, a particular skill, but knowing, learning how to draw bicycles ended up being something that I was very glad I'd learned how to draw a bicycle. Cause, yeah. Cause you would be surprised how many illustrators you ask an illustrator, what's something you hate to draw. And I bet four out of five times they'll say bicycles. <laughs> I hate to draw them, but I can do it. <laughs> it's one of those objects that you think you know what it looks like until you go to draw one. And That's then exactly you're like, right. I have no idea what a bicycle looks like. Yeah. It's like, I think there's a triangle in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. All right. My favorite part of that is in my head, all the non-artists walk into you guys doing that, thinking you're having an existential crisis about like, I don't even know what a bicycle looks like. <laughs> like you're just breaking down in your office and we have no, no, idea why it's great okay last one from greg lawrence is it pronounced gif or incorrectly <laughs> <laughs> well fortunately i i would agree it's pronounced gif all right cool um <laughs> and then one last one from kendall's wife amy did you have to learn to draw in the mad style that presumes there is an official house style no, in fact, uh, what prevented me from getting into MAD for, for a period of time was that I drew too similarly to mm. uh, Mort Drucker. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that was, that was something that, uh, so I, I, you know, when I wanted to get into MAD, I was like, well, how do you do that? Well, I'm going to study the masters, right? So I'm, I'm like looking at Mort's work and the whole time I was, you know, doing stuff to send to Matt. I was looking at more stuff and going through it. I wasn't copying it, right? But I was looking at it. And so it was really, you know, kind of getting through into my, me through osmosis. And I went to show my stuff to the New York guys uh, one time we were out there before I'd gotten in there. And Nick Meglin took me to lunch at the Society of Illustrators with Sam. And Nick took me aside and he said, this is the best piece of advice I'd ever gotten from anybody, by the way. And he said, look, he said, we like your work. We can tell the difference between an artist that's a ripoff artist of somebody mm. and an artist that's just heavily influenced by somebody. Mm. And he said, your work is, is too influenced by Mort Drucker right now. 
Mm. And he said, we, we don't need another more trucker. We've got more trucker. He said, what I want to see is a, the best Tom Richmond. Mm. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I put away all my mads. And I stopped looking at more stuff. And then I started doing more and more stuff on my own, you know, without any references, uh, or, you know, and then eventually I showed them what they wanted to see. And, and then I started working for them. So that's awesome. And that applies to so many other things, right? Like, especially in the world of social media, the comparison mm -hmm. game, I've talked about this before is so dangerous. And um, it just be the best you you can be in whatever you're doing. That, that doesn't apply to just art, right? So, right, yeah. Um, well, I understand you have a really cool story about some pieces that you did for Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but we're <laughs> going to save that for some extra content for our listeners. So, um, Tom, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been so much fun for me, and I know these guys too. So. Um, it's been a blast. Uh, anything else you want to say? Social media? How can people follow you? What's the best way to, to stay in, in touch with what you're doing? Uh, well, just, just uh, my website, TomRichman.com. Easy to remember. Uh, I, do, I do a lot of work on my blog, like you mentioned. I, I try to write on it every day but Saturdays. Um, you know, post sketches and just have fun. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's a long, involved thing. Sometimes it's just a little quip or a little sketch or something like that but uh always always got something new up there so cool dylan kendall anything from you guys that's it this was great all right thanks so much we will see you guys next wednesday on from the middle with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt Hi and even after band camp he might not be the greatest musician but with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.